Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. This is a CBC podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. Welcome to Sick Boy. Welcome to Sick Boy. Sick Boy. Sick Boy. Welcome to Sick Boy. Sick Boy. Sick Boy. Sick Boy. Sick Boy. Sick Boy. We were we kind of like we were diving right into a, a conversation there before I, I I cut us off to make sure we were synced. Uh, but Tari, hello. First of all, hello. Hi. Uh, Hi, pleasure for having me. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for thanks for joining us today. Um, uh, we're gonna be we're gonna be we're getting into some real talk again. I think, uh, which is uh, is something that we are not, uh, not we are unfamiliar not unfamiliar with. with, especially these days. Yeah. Um, but uh, you were saying you are in. You're currently in. St. John's, Newfoundland. Yep. In St. John's for a week. Uh, managed to get over here once the bubble opened. That's right. That that glorious, glorious Atlantic Canada bubble Absolutely. that we're we're all within. Um, Guys, I, I don't I don't know what we're talking about today. I have no idea. Well, why? How about how about we start? This this is great, Brian. Let's transition this way. Uh, Tari, why don't you let us uh, fill us in and our listeners in on the work that you do and uh, and and on. Uh, one of the big things that we're going to be talking about today. Okay, awesome. So, yeah, um, I am a PhD candidate in political science at Dalhousie, um, and my research looks at uh, racial health inequalities or racial health inequities, and I also look at um, the resistance to those racial health inequities in in the black community. Um, and I, and I look at that, I look at when I, when I talk about health, I talk about that very broadly. I don't simply mean, you know, this kind of very narrow clinical definition of what health is, but broadly speaking, the health of the community. So part of the research that I do and part of the work that I do as a community advocate is also to look at other systems that are kind of, um, harming and oppressing people of African descent here in the region. And, and I'm not in, in Nova Scotia, but I live in Nova Scotia, so there in Nova Scotia, should, should I say. Um, so one of those things is policing. And so I'm on the board of the Health Association of African Canadians, which is a community organization that works to end racial health inequities in Nova Scotia. And I'm also part of an initiative called the Nova Scotia Policing Policy Working Group. So that's a little bit about me and what I do. And so uh, some of our listeners might be familiar with the the conversation that we had a couple of months ago with Dr. Ingrid Waldron, mm-hmm. um, who is also a big part of the Healthy Populations Institute flagship um, at Dalhousie, which we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but you're also the, the project co-lead on that with Dr. Waldron, correct? Well, I'm not a co-lead. I am a uh, co-investigator, but I, I, you know, I, I, I hang out there. I try and <laughs> between all it. kinds of things. Uh, but certainly, I'm, I'm a part of the Healthy Populations Institute. I'm very happy and proud to be that. Um, I look up to Dr. Waldron. She's, she's an incredible researcher and an incredible person. Um, and there's a whole host of other excellent researchers on some of the projects that we're working on. Got when, you, got you. When you talk about the the um, broader definition of 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 health and, and stepping away from the clinical idea that we were we're familiar with and we talk a lot about on this podcast, um, how do you how do you kind of qualify or understand and start to break down how these other areas outside of our clinical definition of health um, impact the health of these populations because. I imagine that it's such a daunting task to try to understand how, mm. you know, take policing, for example, which might be a more obvious example, but, but how all of these other, you know, aspects of our society impact the well-being of the people who live within it. Precisely. Yeah, it's a really difficult thing to fully wrap your head around. And I think that it's taken me years and I'm still learning every single day just to try and understand the implications of what this means. There's a quote um, by Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who is a very famous scholar and abolitionist 
Um, and she frames racism specifically as the state-sanctioned or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerability to premature death. So that's a whole bunch of very jargony words. But what that really means is that, like, racism is not simply about how a person feels deep down inside. It's about exposing them to premature death with the power of the state, right? And so when we start Mm. to think about that, we can see these very profound connections between the policies that are made in our government, um, not simply in healthcare, but in things like policing and things like urban planning in things like education um, and things like even economic policy and the suffering and death potentially of black communities. And one of the ways that I like to flip this kind of mindset is also to look at, well, the resistance to that exposure to vulnerability to premature death is in fact a form of healing right so if you're combating that kind of exposure to your demise well you're not only is your resistance saving your own life it's also healing others and so i think that that's a really important and profound connection to make what in in a in in a field where where there seems to be so many intersections of how of how things can can affect a population, kind of like just kind of pointing to what you were saying there, Brian. Like the just the the, the sheer difficulty of of all of the connections, how everything plays into how how the health the outcomes for health of a community, and then all the way and then and then also all the way down to the health of an individual. What in terms of 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 making it a little bit more. Um, mind wrappable i suppose mm-hmm. what are some of the what are some of the 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 really kind of like meaty i know you mentioned policing what are the some of the meaty juicy issues that are that really stick out and stand out that you can point to and say like really these are kind of maybe like the top 3 things that we think are affecting things and that we want to affect change within Right. So excluding the healthcare system and actually just for the purposes of this conversation, excluding policing as well. I think that if we look at housing, right, where someone lives is so vitally important to their well-being, especially within the context of a pandemic. Right. Mm. So if you live in substandard housing or if you live in housing that you can barely afford, that affects everything you do. (laughs) Um, That affects the decisions that you can make. That affects the air that you're breathing inside of the home you have. Let's say you have black mold sitting in the corner because you're living in substandard accommodations that's going to affect your health right that mm. that will that will impact you food um so food security food availability availability to fresh fruits and vegetables that's vital right because when we think about um particular uh diseases like diabetes and things like that they have a dietary component that's not the only thing that is responsible for um, producing diabetes in people, but it it does have an effect, right? So if you can't access fresh fruits and vegetables because in your na- your neighborhood's been gentrified, there's no grocery store anywhere close to you. You don't have a car, and so you're going down to the convenience store and sipping on pop a lot of the time. Well, then that 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 has an effect. That has a clear and demonstrable effect on your health. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third one, I would say, kind of e- thinking about this idea of gentrification is. Urban planning, right? So what does your neighborhood, what's your community look like? Are you, you know, certainly Dr. Waldron has spoken often about environmental racism and kind Mm. of the impacts of environmental racism on people's health. We can we can take that to very urban context in Halifax and talk about, well, do you have access to transportation? effectively do you have access to access to active transportation because we're we're deciding that active transportation is a vital thing for a community well are there bike lanes in your neighborhood or will you get hit by a car right like Mm -hmm. so these these things even though they seem like they're just oh these are diffuse policy issues once you start to understand how embedded race is into policy making um in our region you really start to understand i think why it's so vital that we kind of have this deep reflection and make a significant change um, 
within the context of the way we think about policy here. And what? we were what? when we were talking about we were talking about recreational therapy the other day, and we were uh, yeah. uh, a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah, and we, that's were, right. and we were chatting about um, you know barriers to entry for certain recreational activities from yeah. you know something that could be you know really athletic to very leisurely and. Um, and the idea of something, the thing that we got, we kind of got stuck on a little bit was not stuck on, but we ended up chatting about for a bit was the idea of hiking. It's like, Hey, go for a hike. And it's like, well, if you live in a city, if you live in the North end and you don't have a car and buses don't go out to where you can hike, then like, you know, just, this is like something simple. That's like, go for a hike, like is inaccessible on so many levels for, for such a, for such a large uh, population of people, which something that you just don't that you just don't, you don't make the connection until you really until you until you really think about it and you have those conversations and something that I I I live I live in a gentrified neighborhood I live on I live on just off Agricola um, right. around uh, in, in the North End and Taylor get I, more specific about it uh, <laughs> uh, my address what? is you know, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I and and I at the time and I guess it kind of speaks to how I guess people as a people as a community or people, I'm not really sure exactly how to say this, but almost like a, almost like an organism, I guess. It's like a building gets built and I go, uh, Hey, that's a building that's getting built and, uh, and the price is good. And so I, uh, I'm going to move there and then I move there and I, and it's really not until after I've moved there that I kind of realize that I'm, I'm, I'm a part of something bigger that's going on here where what was probably here before I think would have been probably some low income housing that would have uh, been, been giving housing to somebody who is, you know, has fewer advantages than I do most likely and how that impacts it when that house gets torn down and this building gets put up and now I live here. And it's not something that I, that I think about that I thought about even until far after the mortgage is done right. and I'm in, and I'm in the door. Right. Mm. And it's yeah. So no, that, it, it's so it's so you know it's so profound when you start to realize that okay you know you contribute to or um, are beneficiary of some of these like unjust policies and practices right so I'm not from Halifax as I'm sure mm-hmm. you can tell by my accent <laughs> right um, so okay I, I moved to town um, I moved into a, a, an apartment in the West End okay cool and I, and I begin to learn a lot about what it means to be black in Halifax, or more specifically, what it means to be African Nova Scotian, historically African Nova Scotian in Halifax. That Mm -hmm. history isn't necessarily readily available to people. It's not something that Nova Scotians advertise. It's not something that people wear proudly, but it's something that has a profound impact. And once you start to realize it, once you start to see it, you can't walk around Halifax in the same way. Like I can't Mm. walk around down in the South End going towards Point Pleasant Park and not see the kind of beneficiaries of a particular kind of power, a particular kind of privilege, and also a particular kind of exclusion that exists in the North End or in the Prestons or elsewhere, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's, they're all tied. And so again, understanding our individual benefit that is based on the oppression of others, I think is the linkage that I really want folks to start thinking about when we think about policy, when we start to think about our responsibility to each other. Mm-hmm. What, what, like, I, I, I'm so curious to know what drew you to studying and like, and focusing a lot of your studies on health policy, like, you know, among, among all, all the other arenas where, where you know black people are discriminated against what was the why why health policy what drew you to that specifically so it's a bit of an interesting uh route i after i graduated my undergrad um i met my spouse who is a newfoundlander and i moved to newfoundland and when i they really uh, are the best i I, I mean all bias all bias aside (laughs) yeah we we are we are one of a kind we are truly the best sorry to cut you off Uh, i just had to put that in there uh, I'll concur with that. Um, so, I, so I moved to I moved to Newfoundland, and I began to work for a provincial legislator as their constituency assistant. And I happened to be embedded in the Department of Health, um, and so I saw every single day the profound impact that 
policy making around health had in people's life. Like I saw it every single day. People would pick up the phone and call because especially in Newfoundland, there's this culture of your legislator being the, the point of access to all services, yeah. right? So the constituency assistant really matters. They would call and they would be like, I need this. Otherwise, I think I might die. I need this. Otherwise, my spouse will do this. You know, you, and I could take you through a litany of kind of some tragic, some heroic stories. Um, but but what, what it illuminated to me is that health is the most profoundly political thing that we have within the context of our society because it affects your body it affects your life right mm -hmm. like it's this it's this it's this really nuanced thing but we we have this perception about health that oh everyone's doing the best that they can right you know mm. the the doctors and everyone we're all operating this do no harm mindset you know we doctors take the hippocratic oath it's all good yeah. Um, when in fact there's a whole host of assumptions um, and suppositions and kind of logics that exist within our healthcare systems and within our healthcare processes that actually affect the way we do certain things and affect the way we do not do other things. Right. So that that's kind of what really got me interested there. I, I, I think so you you really set this up kind of perfectly and I think just to just so that Brian will like feel like he's got what he needed out of this conversation, uh, I'd like to throw to a TikTok. Really? I can't believe I'm fucking saying this right now. I'd like to throw really? to a TikTok that act, that actually speaks to it, uh, this is actually something that came out and I, and I have to I have to say TikTok, you know, within the the within the the recent like um uh you know uprising of the of the of this civil rights movement that we are like currently in right now tiktok has actually been like a, a pretty spectacular um piece of of uh, uh social media that has been like that that has been a source of great um education and learning and and Absolutely. and for like and for and for shining a light on some issues that really need to be uh taken seriously and so i'm this, so glad this that's is, recorded uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right you got it there Brian. so so this was actually sent to us by uh a number of people and actually lauren flagged this within our within our like internal group chats and i thought it would be kind of useful to bring to the table for this conversation here but like you you really just touched on it uh, uh in what you just what you just referenced so uh, can, can we just take a second and watch this and then and then come back and, and kind of like um uh just talk about what it is that we're we're about to watch do black people feel pain the same way as white people a 2016 study showed that 50 percent of medical students and residents who were studied thought that black people couldn't feel pain the same way because they had thicker skin or their nerves didn't work the same way where is this from it's a holdover from the days of slavery when white people had to feel better about using slaves. Black people used to be operated on without anesthesia and were used in studies without their consent. So this was a convenient life. To this day, black people are less likely to get the same treatment in terms of pain medication. They're more likely to wait longer in the emergency room. They're less likely to be taken seriously. It's a holdover from the days of slavery. And in my field, this plays a huge role in the black maternal and morbidity crisis. The call to action, doctors, nurses, anybody in the medical field, check your implicit bias. If you see somebody spreading these lies, stop them, but still stop yourself every time you're caring for somebody who has a different skin color than you and check your bias. If you are a woman of color, speak up. If this is happening to you, ask to speak to a different nurse, a different doctor, report them, speak up. Yeah, so like to to sit and watch that and and to hear those statements like it it's almost it's all it's so shocking that it almost does like I, I sit here and I go that no there's no way there's right. no way right yet that yeah, is, is the world we find <laughs> ourselves in you know like Absolutely. and and that is yeah. the way that like it's it's crazy that she just stated that like 50% of of med students think that black people don't feel pain the same way that white like that is fucking astounding 
Absolutely. And, you know, this is this is something that comes up not not just in medical context. Right. If we look at the reason why Darren Wilson, I believe it was Darren Wilson, the officer who killed Mike Brown in Ferguson in 2014, mm-hmm. one of the legal defenses he used was this guy was charging at him who was superhuman and the bullets were bouncing off him. This was a legal defense used to justify why yeah. he did. He was not culpable for murdering this other human being. Right. Like this is a an assumption that has that is made and is carried around Mm. um and especially in medical settings black women in particular Mm. suffer the burdens as as the video stated of this kind of particular understanding of pain pain management yeah this was something that we were talking with uh aminatu uh about um uh well now i'm actually getting my uh my release date schedule maybe mixed up i don't know if that has uh, come out at the time of this conversation or not, but in a conversation that we had with a wonderful uh, woman, Aminatu, um, she was talking about her experience with cancer and 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 about and about the experience that she had, feeling like feeling like she wasn't taken as seriously with yeah. her pain concerns um, until she until she ended up switching doctors. She she happened to get a black female doctor, and it was like, you know the light switch light and, day. and it was yeah. just, it was just like, Hey, here all of a sudden I'm not getting all, I'm not feeling all this, all, all these things that I was getting before, um, in my other care. Cause now I feel like I'm being understood and I'm not, and I, you know, there's not those. And again, it's like going back to the, the, the definition that, um, the definition of racism, um, from the person, from the person you referenced before is that it's, it might, it's not, and this was something that I was that I was having trouble with a few weeks ago because racism in my mind and how I grew up in the definition that was in the back of my mind was always this like personal. I know what I'm doing. It's intentional. I don't. I I I can say I don't like this other person because of the color of the skin or the culture or whatever, and and I know that. And and then sort of f- switching that framework to the understanding of. It's not. Oh, it's not always, or actually, very probably, more, way more rarely, is an intentional thing. It's rather something that's built in, that's baked in, that you don't really realize is happening on on certain levels. Um, like a doctor who might be just just a little bit more suspicious that maybe you're trying to get pain meds or something like that, because that's yep. you know that's just baked into their understanding for whatever reason because of the the school that they went to the because of the curriculum that they were taught because of the the history of that curriculum and who came up with that and in what decade i mean it's just like it does become mind-boggling yeah mm-hmm. once you start unwinding the, the the thread once you start um moving back from this idea that racism is simply or solely this kind of interpersonal hatred. And in fact, it is a a system by which we've founded (laughs) um, and built upon our entire state, our entire nation state. um, When we start to recognize the fact that here in Canada, we can't claim some kind of a lack of culpability or um, difference from the United States under any circumstances. And in Mm -hmm. fact, we have our own unique and pernicious legacy of racism and white supremacy. When you start doing that, you you, <laughs> you start getting a headache because you realize mm-hmm. that there are so many fictions that are told to us and taught mm-hmm. to us throughout the context of our lives about who we are. When we when we when we stop thinking of ourselves as these innocent protagonists and in fact think of ourselves as actors within a broader set of relationships and practices and societies then i think we can start taking responsibility collectively Mm. for what we need to do to make our society better this is why this is why that statement of 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 it's not enough to be not racist is so important Mm -hmm. like like it to be not racist is not enough we need to be anti like we need to actively be anti-racist right and that and that's um that's like well, it's I, fucking I, crazy to me that I'm 32 years old and that's the first time I've ever I, like it's the first time I that light bulb's ever gone off where I've gone, "Oh fuck." Yeah, right. Talking about speaking but, about rev- revelations though, like I, you know, I I think one of the things that's been going through my mind a lot in the last couple of months is that it it goes it goes back to like these systems that we've created have been, you know, take democracy for example. This has been around for a few hundred years. 
when that was when the idea of democracy was created think about like racism existed like like not racism yeah. exists now but like slavery existed like right. like the the times that we've created and founded these systems like think about like take yourself back to what it would be like to live in that time and the oppression of of different types of people and how that is embedded into the foundation of what those systems were built on. It's like, hey, we need to go back and like think about this. Like think about how this was created Precisely. and the impacts that that has now. Because well, you know, well, <laughs> it's that, clearly yeah, that, a lot, right? Like, <laughs> right. I mean, well, this this is it. It's like, okay, when you think of kind of like the Western model of liberal democracy. I, I know I'm probably going a bit way too kind of you know galaxy brain here, but go you think, there. You think about the. Um, Western model of liberal democracy, parliamentary democracy, however you want to define it, um, and you think about its its institution um, in many kind of what we might call Western states. Uh, we're talking about the 16th century where this starts to kick off. You have the English Civil War, no more divine right of kings, among other things, and we can kind of go from there. As many historians will tell you, and historians are way better at political scientists <laughs> doing this, but there was... Race is a taxonomy that emerges from racism, i.e. racism is this particular process that is linked with capital and power, right? You don't get – there weren't pre-existing races that exist, you know, that people thought about and and whatever, and then, of course, we attach racism to it. No, the the system of oppression came first, right? And so – when we see declaration, the Declaration of Independence or something else, when we say all men are created equal, we were not people like me were not considered to be men, i.e. we were not considered to be people. Right. right and so right. that fundamental understanding and assumption, I think, recasts what we think of as quote unquote democratic engagement, what we think of as right or good or just or neutral. And so my whole goal with the research that I do is to try and disrupt what people think of as a neutral or apolitical space. There is, there, there, I don't believe there's such a thing. Yeah. It, is it, I, I, this might be, um, I, I, I'm not sure if this is like it, within your lane or not, but mm-hmm. I, like, can, can you speak to uh, epigenetics and like, and like what epigenetics is and how that, that might be? how all of this kind of plays a role within within the, the context of the conversation we're having right now? Right. So I can speak a little bit to it. Again, political scientists, not epidemiologists, but sure, 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 sure. <laughs> I have a bit of foundational understanding, right? So for, for, from my perspective, the role that epigenetics has in this context is the idea that there are not predetermined genetic differences between black people and white people, right? Like these are not, these are not, these categories are meaningless when it comes down to a genetic level. But what is meaningful are the social conditions that have an impact on the way that we express our genes within the context of our bodies, right? So case in point, when a person, there is some research that suggests that um, because of racial discrimination, the levels of cortisol in black people um, are higher than amongst white people, right? Because of the fact that they are experiencing discrimination and therefore are experiencing a heightened level of this stress hormone, right? Mm. That has an impact on the way that different organs function and that might be the cause for hypertension or might be the cause for increased rates of diabetes, as an example, right? So it's this idea that the expression of genetic material that we all have is being influenced by these social, economic, environmental and political conditions that we live within. Wow. Like, yeah, that it's is like, fascinating. It, isn't that fucking crazy? Like, like mm-hmm. the idea that, that the social implications are like literally having an effect on the evolution of, mm. of, 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 of people of a particular like skin color. Like, like I mean that that is like am I wrong there like that well, is that's I, I, I like that say is evolution but more so the the kind of expression of the sure, of sure. these genetic materials that we have we we all have we all have the propensity for x or y but the exposure with it throughout right. the life course impacts not only 
of course, your own health, but also potentially your children's health and your children's right. health. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, it's, yeah, right. It's intergenerational, right? Like, that's why yeah. we hear the talk of intergenerational trauma and, and you know, the, the oppression against, you know, take indigenous people as as well. Like, they're, they're, they're still very much reeling from the impact of the, um, you know, the the um uh <laughs> well, cultural genocide yeah, yeah, yeah right yeah. The, the cultural and and you know otherwise genocide that they experience right that's that's precisely it right like let's say your whole family lived in a neighborhood where there was pollution toxicity there was this there was that there was a third well not only are you likely to experience the outcomes of that but what will it mean genetically for your children and for your children's children that you have ex- experienced those things what will that mean in terms of the way that particular genetic traits may or may not be expressed mm. so i think that that's kind of a key issue here um again i am not an epidemiologist mm-hmm. but there, but i can recommend the name of a couple of folks that i've read um that have kind of informed my thinking on this so there's a there's a professor at harvard her name is nancy krieger and she does a lot of work on the kind of epigenetics of racism and the eco-social uh nature of kind of racial oppression which would be really interesting to which would be really interesting to have that conversation and kind of dive deep on 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 the genetics part of uh part of things we're going to be we're going to be talking a little teaser here we're going to be talking to a um um to a doc about about crispr um in right. the uh in the coming weeks so we're really excited about that but um something that i that that just in this conversation around i mean we're talking we were talking about uh just the just like the history and going back to um, going back to like the American Civil War um, and um, Canada's independence from from the UK uh, from uh, the British Empire, I guess at the time, and and how in my mind I think and in probably all of our minds that just seem that seems like another world ago, mm. and and even something even something super even something way more recent like the Civil Rights Movement at being what. 50 years ago, 50, 60, 50, 60, 60 yeah. years ago, uh, seems like, a. I mean, it is a, for, for us, we're not, I'm, you know, I'm 30 years old. It's a, it's, it's a two lifetimes ago for me at my age. And, and when really, if you look back to, um, the, uh, the emancipation proclamation in the U S I mean, that is like two and a half or three whole people's lives ago. Yeah. And I think it was, I think it was, I think it might've been a, an episode of Joe Rogan where he was talking, where he was talking about like how we think about that as a long time ago. But then if you think about it in terms of how many people that was, I mean, it's like yesterday for people, mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. It was, it's like 10 minutes ago for people right. and how, and how we frame it as, oh, this happened so long ago and all these things happened so long ago. It's like, it's like, we haven't even had a moment to breathe yet, let alone like, and, and all there's all of these things that are baked in and i think that's probably a state that a lot of people are that a lot of people are in especially people who are who people who aren't black and people who are who are are kind of waking up uh in the over the last few months with this kind of uh mm-hmm. with this kind of like wave that's that that's coming or, or that has like has been kind of like crashing over uh, like across the world is this this like mind-boggling realization and i think where i where i end up a lot of times is going you know where do we start what are the what are what like what are actionable steps i feel like that's where i where i where i meet resistance because mm-hmm. i i every day i think I'm, I, I'm i understand more learning more hearing more having conversations like these that are that are eye-opening and um and and shedding a lot of light on things and i'm and i i i always end up wondering what are the, what are some actionable actionable steps? And I guess specifically, I mean, your 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 wheelhouse is is in Nova Scotia. You know, what can we do as 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 Nova Scotians on some level to to produce actionable change? 
Right. And so, and this is where, you know, for me, I always want to get to in the conversation. Um, I, I will never be the person to tell you that just f- f- do these four steps and you'll be anti-racist and the world will be a better place. I'm <laughs> yeah, not but, selling but that it, kind of s- snake oil. But, yeah. but, but, ev- but everyone <laughs> loves a good listicle. <laughs> right. You yeah. know, like that, that's not the case. Uh, publishing you know, Cosmo. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> a, a, again, the, the the structural racism that exists in Nova Scotia specifically predates the Canadian state. So it is not going away. The foundations of the city of Halifax and of the entire province are very much rooted in the systematic oppression of black and indigenous peoples. Okay. With that being said, um, there is space, there is room for people to take accountability and responsibility um, within their own communities, right? And part of that means... A, doing some of that listening and understanding. Part of that also means making yourself aware of what your levers are to change. So, case in point, healthcare in Nova Scotia. My, well, the, the, the organization that I'm involved with, the Health Association of African Canadians, has engaged the Nova Scotia Health Authority um, over the past few years to produce an African Nova Scotian health strategy. Um, we've moved a little bit of the way on that. Um, they've hired the the health authority's first ever uh, African Nova Scotian health consultant, right? And she's a fantastic dynamic figure um, and she's doing an awful lot of excellent work. We need way more than that, right? And so w- when we start saying we need way more than that, what it really means is, can we hold our democratically elected representatives to account, right? Like, mm-hmm. We can go deeper, we can go into the city of Halifax, right? Or the Halifax Regional Municipality. We know that the municipality has um, responsibility over things like transportation within the city limits. We know they have responsibility, by and large, over policing within the city limits. What are we doing to hold our democratically elected representatives to account for the decisions that they are making, especially when we realize that there's a municipal election coming up. I don't Mm. want to reduce this solely to voting because that's not the case. We have Mm. a host of other ways that people can get involved. We have organizations that they can donate to. um, And I'd be happy to send you a list at some point or, 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 you know, figure out some of that stuff. We have actions that they can get involved with if they want to go to a protest, if they want to help out. Um, and of course, there's this kind of mindset mindset shift as well, right? Within your familial relations, within your communal relations. But there is this very specific lever to change that we have, which is we have a system of purported democratic accountability. How do we ensure that we hold our elected representatives to account mm. to follow through on the things that they're claiming? Because yeah. right now we have a whole bunch of legislators, <clears throat> a whole bunch of leaders talking about whole bunch of mess and doing precisely nothing about those those i mean i i I think it was very soon after um uh very soon after uh george floyd was killed killer mike um was on tv in atlanta and and his his words on on the power of your vote like really really spoke to me um and and how and how your how your vote is how your vote is and again like you said not to reduce it just to voting but but voting does voting is a big chunk and how your vote plays into the longevity of of things that happen and and policies that get put into place as long as you're also you're voting in you're voting in the policies and the policies are 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 being, being put in, enacted. being, being enacted yeah. I and think that, that, and a vote's coming up. And like you said, a vote's coming up soon. I mean, I, I, I know that this is going to, that it's going to be a, that it's going to be like a, a hot, uh, a hot button thing with, uh, with people that are running, that they're making sure that people here know that where they stand and what their, and what their, uh, what their ambitions are and what their policies, what, the, what policies they want to enact. And, and then our responsibility, uh, after after voting people in, like you said, to to hold people accountable. But but acknowledging that um, the the system is also 
not effective. Yeah, like, no, listen. Like the, the, <laughs> yeah, right, the, so because right. one of my frustration with with politics too, and aside from like you know saying the system's broken, blah blah blah. Like the one of my things that is frustrating, but is I feel like change happens so slowly. It's so yep. incremental, and and it feels like in the 21st century we should have a system that that uh enact change or or expedites change you know it's like there to the correct to correct the problems of the past and it feels like it it doesn't so like to to just talk about voting a little bit for for a second here or the political system for mm-hmm. for a second like what is it about the political system um that that could change that would positively um benefit the current situation Right. Okay. So I will first, uh, firstly, I'd like to say that my, my own personal politics, voting is a tool in a broader toolbox of approaches to state control and state power. Right. So I'm not, I'm not one of those. Well, if you, if you don't vote, then you are a terrible human being. I am one of those people that looks at it pragmatically. You know, I mean, for goodness sake, when Angela Davis is telling folks to vote for Joe Biden, because, because Donald Trump is in the white house and we got to get him out so that we can pressure the other guy that that's, that's where my mindset, where my politics are. Right. So let, let me be abundantly clear there. The political system that we have, we we have a system of what we might call responsible government, right? Where the the at least in the provinces and in the and in the uh, federal government, um, we elect the legislators um, of the lower house, and they in turn produce a cabinet that's made out of that particular system, right? So it's meant to ensure that we're always being represented as a society. Um, but part of what's produced when we when we start to think about how our systems of power work is that we've got a very, very kind of narrow set of approaches and, and a very, very narrow set of people who are around the table making consequential issues. Um, and without trying to wave the flag of representative politics or or representational politics, we may need to change the kinds of people that are around that table to better better align not only in terms of race, but in terms of politics Mm. with the kinds of policy solutions that we would like to see, right? Mm. So if we understand that there are certain ways within our education systems, within our healthcare systems and more that the Premier of Nova Scotia has considerable power, more so than any other particular figure, then we might say, okay, well, who would we want our Premier to be and who, we, who would we want the people around our Premier to be? How, what is their approach and what is their understanding of the way that capital and capitalism works? What is their approach and what is their understanding of the of the of the role of community advocacy and community voice and community power. We can start to interrogate and question, well, who's there and what are they doing right now? And what would we like to see in the future? At the same time, we have to understand that the ways that our communities work aren't solely focused on the state, right? Mm-hmm. So we have the capacity for mutual aid and we have the capacity for mutual engagement. We have the capacity to have a community together that doesn't involve the use of state power to govern X or Y, right? Mm. And so we've seen fantastic examples of that here in Halifax recently. Uh, The Black Lives Matter Solidarity Fund of Nova Scotia raised, I think, something like $120,000, $130,000, right? And Mm -hmm. that money is going to people that need it, right? It It is citizens of the province understanding that you know what we need to redistribute some funds because Mm. fundamentally we don't want people to die Mm. and we don't need the state to be in charge of that right Mm. there are all kinds of ways that we can work to collectively as a community to better the place that we live in but it requires us thinking very clearly about what what it is we wish to see so for me my personal politics i'm an abolitionist right so that doesn't just mean, hey, defund the police or whatever. It also means rethinking the way that we relate to each other. And I'm still learning mm. and I'm still growing in that. But mm. what does it mean to be a better person to the people that I'm around? How can I learn that? How can I grow in that? 
Um, and how can that growth in my personal self also map onto my politics and what I do outside mm. of my own life? Yeah, absolutely. Sick Boy Podcast will be right back after this very short break. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. This idea of defunding the police and this idea of policing as a as a as a public health crisis for for black community members, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's something that is on a lot of people's minds right now, and it's it's like it's definitely becoming a huge part of the 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 like the global discourse that's that we're mm-hmm. currently in. Um, what are like what are your so okay so so let's pretend I'm the person that's like. That's sitting here and 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 looking at you and going defund the police. Are you are you out of your fucking mind? Like right. what? Who do you call? Who do you call when your your neighbor's getting raped? Who do you call when when you know when um when when crimes are being committed? Yeah, yeah. When crimes are happening all over the place and 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 at rampant rates. Like what? How 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 on earth could we ever think of defunding the police? Um. What is what? Prove me, prove me wrong. Change my mind on defunding the police. Right. Okay. So Stephen I, 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 I attack that question from from three separate directions. The first is fundamentally, most of the work that police officers do on a day to day basis has nothing to do with certainly violent crime. Most mm-hmm. of the work that they do has nothing to do with violent crime. They most of their work is engaging with people with mental health issues, um, um, engaging with people who are threatening in some way, shape or form a particular kind of social and political space, right? So the homeless, right? Like show, showing up there, noise complaints. Oh, we don't like those kinds of noises in our neighborhoods. It's traffic stops, right? Like these are all things that the police do most of the time. So if we take out that solidly, let's let's be let's be conservative here, and let's say solidly 65-70% of activity, right there we've taken a massive chunk out of the police budget. Right? Like mm-hmm. just, yeah. just just by having alternative approaches to some of those issues. Okay, we'll take that out. I think next- so just just to elaborate and clarify that a little bit too, because people might hear that and go, well, then who do I call if I have a noise complaint? Like, like I, I need somebody needs to come up. Well, that and there would be a system set up, right? That, yeah. rep- that with the funds that aren't right, being but I just directed. Wanna, to I want to clarify that. In yes, case let, let, like, <laughs> let, let's be yes, let's be very clear that when people say defund the police, they don't say okay, defund the police. Here we go. It's it's about a whole. It's a systemic change that, requ- that would require <laughs> policies that would engage differently with some of these problems that we've set up within the context of our society. So could we put together a team of professionals who are well-trained and well-versed in some of the challenges that folks with mental illnesses face to address those people, to engage them where they are and get and connect them to the services that might help them have a better day, have Mm -hmm. a better week, Mm -hmm. have a better month. Instead of criminalizing yeah. those people and possibly killing them, yeah. that it, it, it's it's a simple question, right? Um, sorry, I had an I, I had an experience. I had an experience. Well, Joe, you were there. We had an experience at um, we were at uh, the Commons of, uh, a few weeks ago, and there was a mm. there was a guy. He was he was uh, clearly dealing with me, uh, with severe mental health issues. Um, probably probably uh, uh, an addict of some of some sort and um or of some substance and he was he was causing minor issues and and i kind of sat and monitored and and he kind of went over to this woman he was he was he was being pretty disruptive to this woman and i was or he it looked like he was going to so i kind of monitored and thought okay well if he if he is then i'll go over and i'll just kind of i'll just sort of try to mediate de-escalate the situation de-escalate yeah. the situation and the whole time in the back of my mind, I was thinking to myself, like, 
do I call the police on this person? He's clearly drunk, high of some kind. And, and, and is he a danger to people? Is he a danger to himself? And sort of weighing what the benefit would be of, of notifying the police that this person is here and having these issues. And, and I didn't know where to go with it because my first thought was, God, I don't want to send this guy to fucking jail. Like he's, he's having a, he's having a real rough go and I'm not real. And I don't think calling the police is, is going to serve him any good because I think that they'll just show up and they'll cuff him and probably be rough with him and they'll throw him in, they'll throw him in the drunk tank for the day or whatever. And then he'll be on his way 24 hours from now and who knows what we goes hope. on in the drunk tank. Yeah, we, exactly. Oh, well, yeah. In, in, in the very yeah. least. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, and then on the other side, I'm weighing, you know, is it, but is it better to do that? Because he could be a danger to himself. He could, I mean, he's, he's, he's inebriated on some level. He could be, he could harm himself. He could harm somebody else. And like weighing all these things and, you know, eventually coming to the conclusion that, you know, I'm just going to go over there and, and say, Hey, what's going on? Is it cool? Like if this comes to an end, but just the fact that I, that it really did take a, a, a deep amount of consideration as to whether the police were, were, were more harm than help well, in this that situation. So, you know, uh, and, and there are folks, there have been folks in the, in Halifax across North America. And like, I should be very clear here. There have been, there have been folks that have been doing this work for decades, right? There have been folks who've been doing this work in Halifax for many years. So I, I think about L. Jones. I think about, uh, mm. you know, I just think about a whole host of individuals who are far more kind of lucid on some of these things than I, and I'm still learning f- from them in terms of to, to pass these things out. But mm. but I say I say those things to say this. What we're trying to do is imagine a society where everyone's humanity is paramount to the way that they are treated by everybody else. And the police, in my mind, do not fit into that conception of that future. They, mm. they don't, right? Like, that is not what they're set up for. That is, e- even though individual officers may absolutely express that level of humanity, and I don't want to take away from those individual officers, the system mm. and the institution of policing mm-hmm. is not. It's mm. not, and it never has been. That's not the fundamental logic that policing operates within, right? Mm. And so when we, when, we, when we engage on that basic level of saying, hey, this guy's probably having a really bad day. What would be best for him? 99.9% of the time, I promise you, the thing that was is best for him is probably not having a, an officer show up. Mm-hmm. And as for the, 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 the classic red herring argument is what about rapists? What about murderers? Mm. And I would never, I would never deign to speak for um, those whose family have been murdered. I would never deign to speak for uh, survivors of sexual assault um, uh, uh, in, in any way, shape or form. But I would say that statistically speaking, the likelihood <laughs> that the police are actually going to A, find, charge, you know, do, bring, do, to justice. <laughs> bring to just justice, um, and I used air quotes here, mm-hmm. justice, the perpetrators of that violence are relatively slim. Then, of course, we might go to accounts from survivors who might seem, I, I've read some, and so I, again, I can't speak to it, but I, I can mm-hmm. say that I've read some, who say that that process was in fact harmful to them, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the question again becomes, well, is this system serving people? It's probably not. And then this other red herring that's constantly constructed when we ask, why would you defund the police? Is saying, well, they help make me feel safe. And, what, right. uh, and the question that I would ask to those who would say that is, well, you might want to interrogate that because they make me feel, me personally as a black man, profoundly unsafe. Yeah. When I walk down the street in the North End or in the West End and I'm mm. walking and it doesn't matter what I'm wearing, it doesn't matter, you know, I, I, I push aside and I reject all of that different respectability politics stuff. It doesn't matter what I'm wearing, it doesn't matter who I'm with, it doesn't matter what time of night or day that I'm in. If I see a cop, I get scared. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Nor, sh- nor should it matter what, what you're wearing or what you look like or how you're what what you're doing. It shouldn't not. matter. Of course. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I was, you know, I'm, and I'm glad that you you touched on all that because I, it's 
to be, to be, if I'm going to be like super frank and, and really, really transparent and honest, um, when that, when that first came to light, that idea of, of like defunding the police, I, I remember my initial reaction was like, God, that sounds, that sounds absurd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A, a world without police. I immediately went to like, Oh, uh, defunding the police means completely abolishing the police. No more, no longer having the police. That was and my, I think, it, I think it was, I think it was literally that day I read an article that came out. It was like a Rolling Stones article, um, that, that was quoting the, uh, it was, it was Dallas police chief, David Brown. And this was back in 2016. Mm-hmm. And he 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 basically was like coming out to say we need we need a, a total like overhaul about mm. the way that we view police and how our, how police work within within our system within our within our society and his whole thing was like we like we just we are we assume the cops are there to to take care of far too many things right. Absolutely. Any any and every issue that that comes up, it's like hand it off to the cops, and that just doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah, and well, and, and so it, it took me it took me to, like it took me that to read that to go, oh okay, wait a minute, take a step back. Maybe there is something to this. And now the more the more I'm the more I'm seeing online of 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 people talking about the you know how this uh, this concept of defunding the police is could. I shouldn't even say can, but like will just benefit society. The more I'm, I, I get it. Like the more I'm, I'm, I'm so, mm. I, I'm not resistant to it now. I'm so mm. open to the idea mm-hmm. to it. And like, Tari, to hear you express, express it from like, it, from your own point of view, it's like, yeah, fuck, of course. Like, what, what are mm-hmm. we doing here? Yeah. What's I, the point of all the, this? The thing was the, the, the my initial, re, my initial reaction was that at the, at, that one of the issues that plagues all of these all of these police brutality things is is uh, the wrong people being hired, and then the wrong people subsequently getting uh, getting uh, insufficient training, and that was that was kind of, and then I and then and so then the defunding the defunding uh, idea was like, oh my god, is there going to be is there going to be like, is there going to be smaller salaries for the boots on the ground people that will then get more poorly trained because of that was the, that was sort of the, the lens mm. through which I was viewing that. But then, and then some, like on the, along the same lines as you were putting, as you were saying there, Tari, is the idea that police are doing, and, and you, Jeremy, that police, that police have this like massive umbrella of responsibility. And so much of it actually isn't the, the, the like really like nitty gritty crime stuff that if if another system was set up to handle all of these things that the police that you know someone carrying a gun around doesn't need to be handling if that was set up under some other system and some other organization and then and then dollars were spent on the police doing the things that they that you that you might need a gun to do or you might need really high quality training to do that the dollars that are spent on on that training and on the people that do that job are just high are high quality. Right. Well, I mean, I I would I would go a step further and simply say that like if we if we believe if we can contend for a second and and I would certainly contend this that crime is socially constructed, right? How is it the case that that homeless man in the park who was a little drunk and who was having a really bad day might be considered quote unquote a criminal, but those right. who are defrauding Canadians for millions and millions and millions of dollars every year, particularly vulnerable Canadians aren't pursued in any way, shape or form. Well, that's because right. one has this very visible sense of like, I am enforcing state power <laughs> upon you. And the other one has this kind of very uh, quote unquote white, white collar crime Mm. construction layered upon it right so mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. who those who park their money in tax havens why where, where's the enforcement right like where's the broken windows for for evading the cra right like and, and that's not to say that that's what i want to see per se but but it's to say that that this is this is socially constructed and that 
in fact, it is the way that we think about what it is to exist in our society, what it is to be a quote unquote criminal that needs to change. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so I get, you know, I, even when we, when we talk about defunding the police, I get very sensitive to the idea that what this might be a call for is a bit of a funding cut. And then that gets farmed out into auxiliary mm. services and we call it a day. No, that's not, that can't be what mm-hmm. it is, right? Like when, when we, when we talk mm. about abolition, we need to actually talk about abolition and we need to think right. about the better world that we can produce that mm-hmm. may happen incrementally, but those increments can look a lot larger. They could be a lot bigger chunks than the increments we've been sold in the past. It can't happen literally tomorrow, but could it happen mm. next year? Possibly. Right. And mm. I, and I have, I have that kind of belief um and, and commitment and desire um and i think that we have to start stop talking around um the roots of where policing comes from the way that crime is constructed to criminalize some and to absolve others um and the effects that policing has on the health of our communities mm. yeah the it, it's like i'm all for step in the right direction but but like the incremental change is the thing that frustrates me the most. And like to go back to the, the looking at like the foundations of the systems that exist and where they come from. Like if you just, the thing that was most striking for me is that when I was looking into this idea of defunding the police and trying to understand it better, um, I was thinking like, Oh, we don't need to defund the police. We need to fund them more because they need more training. But then it's like the solution isn't more training. The solution is the system is broken. So replace it with something that works. Look at where it came from. It came from slave or policing was born from the emancipation of slavery. It, it, it only started as a concept after that. So like, mm-hmm. if you look at the root of it and where it came from, it's like this thing is, is built on a foundation that shouldn't exist in today's society. Right. It's, uh, it's all that, that that's, that's it. And I do think that like, you know, we, we get to this stage in some of these conversations where, you know, we start to struggle to imagine something new. Mm. But Mm. the beautiful thing is that there have been people that have been working, particularly black women, black and indigenous women have been imagining that new thing for a very long time. We just have to go and listen to them and Mm. put them at the front of our movement and put them at the front of our efforts and climb down collectively (laughs) Um, especially, especially men, especially cisgendered men. We need to climb down from our contexts, our places of privilege Mm. and put the people that have been doing the work to imagine this future to the forefront because they are the ones who are doing it anyway, whether Mm. or not we're on board. Right. Mm. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I, I think that like incrementalism comes as this kind of very instinctual response it's like okay i know that things take a really long time i know you know myself being a policy researcher i know how policy works i know that you know we have this this supposed rational policy approach and we've got to submit these briefing notes and then eventually it gets to be law by virtue blah 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 you know i could i could take you through the whole thing but you have to you have to pay for a class to do that (laughs) but 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 I understand that those things exist, but I refuse to let my imagination and my commitment and my activism be limited by those narrow frames. I refuse mm-hmm. to let it happen um, because what, once you let that happen, what you essentially say is that actually the status quo plus or minus a few tweaks is just fine, and it's mm-hmm. not. It's not yeah. fine. I would really like to hear. I would really love to. To hear, because I I, I really that resonated with me a lot. That it is that it's hard when you've got something that is so ingrained. You know, I mean, like think about think about the just the narrative of like of a child going. It's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like there's like I want to be a police. I want to be a firefighter. I want to be an astronaut. You've got these like handful of things. Hey man, I wanted to be a marine biologist. Right? You wanted to be. You wanted to be a WWF. You wanted to be a WWF wrestler. You wanted to be Randy one Macho Man Savage. One of the other. Yeah. And and you think and and when you think just about that narrative, it's just how ingrained the idea of the police is in in mm. our minds from a very young age. 
Um, you know, whether it's from a, from a positive perspective or a negative perspective, depends on where you come from, depends on your background, the color of your skin, a whole bunch of factors. It is hard to imagine it not being there in the way that it is. Mm -hmm. And, and I would be, I would love to hear what some like really, some really solid, um, ideas are around what that, what the future of that, or what the reconstruction Mm-hmm. looks like might look like that would be fascinating yeah i think you know that this there's experiments underway right when i say experiments i don't <laughs> mean that literally i mean that there, there are there are processes underway yeah. where individuals and groups and communities are deciding to go a different route yeah um, i mean minneapolis I minneapolis mean, is a yeah. classic example mm-hmm. um I certainly think that whatever that future looks like, it looks an awful lot like funding what we might call the upstream determinants of health or the structural determinants of health a right. lot more. And this right. is where the circle comes right back, right? Yes. Like if you have a roof over your head and three square meals a day and the capacity to to engage in the broader society that you live within, I think it's a lot less likely – that you may get yourself into a situation where you might be having that really bad day in this really yep. public way that may be bothering another person potentially. Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. Like full circle. And, yeah, yeah. and so for me, I, I can't extricate the two. Um, I've tried, it would make my PhD a lot easier to accomplish, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but, but I can't, I can't, I can't pull the two apart. They're, they're massively ingrained to me. Hmm. Well, Tari, I want to say thanks, man. Thank you for for taking the time out of your day today to sit down with us and to to again like continue to tackle this this big um, this big conversation that we we have found ourselves circling back to over and over again over the last couple of months uh, because there's clearly a lot of work to be done and the work that you are doing is vitally important and uh, I can speak beyond uh, uh, I can speak on behalf of the three of us, when I say that, uh, we are, we're just eternally grateful that there's people like yourself out there doing that work. And, uh, we are, we're here with you through and through, you know? So <laughs> thank it's, you uh, so much. It, yeah. And, and, and yeah. And, and, and I, 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 I want to just thank you for, um, for, for offering that up to our listeners, because I, again, I think it's really, really important. Yeah. Thank you. No, Absolutely. I appreciate it. And I, I would just like to say, you know, to your listeners, don't don't take me as an authority on any of this. Go read. Go read mm-hmm. an awful lot. Go listen. Mm-hmm. Go listen to the people that have been doing this for years and years and years. Um, and go form your own assumptions or, or go form your own understandings of what what mm-hmm. that future could look like. Mm-hmm. You know, engage in this kind of broader communal process of unlearning this kind of violent system and learning something new. Um, mm-hmm. That's the one thing I would I would leave your yeah. listeners with. Thanks for your humility. Thank you again, Terry. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, thank you all so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we will be back again next week with another wonderful conversation. But in the meantime, uh, follow us on Spotify or go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review and hit the subscribe button because uh, those two very simple things uh, can go a long way in order to help more people out there hear the important conversations like we just had here. Um, and you can also support the podcast in other ways if you would like. Uh, Taylor, why don't you let them know about Patreon? Head on over to patreon.com slash sickboy. Uh, Patreon community is incredible. We, uh, one, of the, one of the cool things that we've been doing that we've uh, just started with our Patreon uh, community recently is that we are giving free access, um, free, well, f- in exchange for your for your contribution, we're giving you ac- all patrons free access to our live shows, our digital our digital live shows, um, which is uh, strictly where we are confined uh, during this uh, strange and weird time of uh, of pandemics. So we are we are locked to our computer screens and our home recording studios, and uh, and we're making it. Uh, well, I'll, I'll pass the credit on to Jaron Bry for making it a an incredible visual funky experience, but you get free access to that. If you uh, join a Patreon community, patreon.com slash sick boy.
And uh, thanks as always uh, to Donovan, the CPAP Morgan, for the amazing sound designs. Design. You got Thank it. Thank you for making it sound like I said that word properly. Design. Um, <laughs> and uh, and as always, if you're craving some more content uh, like this podcast we, that we just recorded, you can find us on TikTok. Uh, that's primarily oh. where we exist. So oh, for online. the love so find of us, follow God. us on our social media uh, on TikTok at Sick Boy Podcast. <sighs> Uh, that is it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.